compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity are known as the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma meaning supreme or sublime or celestial, or one translation of the word Brahma, which I liked a lot, was the word best. Vihara is dwelling or abiding or home. So these four states, these four qualities of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity are like our best home, our best sense of home. And like with any sense of home, we may leave that dwelling, we may leave that abiding sometimes, but in a way we know where we belong, we know where we are truly safe, and we know how to get back there. So these four together create this sense of the best home. Metta or loving kindness, which we've talked about so much, and compassion, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain. Just as Kamala talked about cruelty as the far enemy of compassion, it's also the case that there are other states of mind, other qualities that can easily be confused with compassion. The first time that Joseph and I went to Russia to teach, we went actually a little surreptitiously. We went as part of a tour group and we kept disappearing. Um, we kept disappearing to people's living rooms. This was a long time ago, it was the Soviet Union. Um, and we kept disappearing to different people's living rooms where people would come to gather to learn how to meditate. And we had a translator coming with us from amongst that group. And I noticed that I was speaking a lot about compassion, and I noticed that whenever I would use the word compassion, and you know, clearly it was being translated, I would then sense this really funny feeling in the room. So finally one day I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And he said in great florid detail, you know, he said, oh, I, you know, I described the state where it feels as though your heart is just being crushed and, you know, you're completely overcome and shattered and broken by the pain. And he said, it's like someone has taken a stake and just driven it through your heart. And, you know, so then I thought, well, no wonder, you know, I feel this really funny feeling in the room. But as odd as it seems, we can get confused and actually think that this state of being overcome, being shattered, being submerged in pain is the same as compassion, and yet it's not. It's not to pass judgment on that state, but there's something in compassion that even though it is opening to pain, it is beholding pain, it's clear and honest about pain, there's something that is whole within it, that supports us and supports the other, that allows energy to keep flowing rather than the kind of immense um, breakdown that can happen when we're truly overcome. And so therefore compassion is a more reliable motivator 
to make change because it actually can be present in the face of pain and courageous in the face of pain and somehow energized even in the face of pain. When I was, uh, after I'd written my second book, I went through that awful period of trying to find a book title, which was just, it was horrible, um, because I couldn't really think of a title. I was teaching, some of you were actually sitting that course, uh, in Santa Rosa a couple of years ago, and that was the key period for finding the book title, and I just couldn't think of one, although title after title after title was going through my mind. It was so bad that one of my fellow teachers came into the hall one day and said, I don't think I want to sit near you, <laughs> because when I sit, she said, all these titles just keep going through my mind and it just won't stop. So, but still, no title. And then I left Santa Rosa and went back home to Barry to teach, and I was listening to one of the other teachers give a talk when she used this quotation from Jnana Tara, who's a very esteemed uh, Buddhist monk who lived in Sri Lanka, died not too long ago. Jnana Tara said, It is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. So as soon as I heard that phrase, heart as wide as the world, I thought, that's it. And so it was. And it's such a beautiful sense of compassion, something that energizes us, that frees us, that opens us so that we can move to make change. Compassion as a quality of the heart is a tremendous purifier of our own motivation in spiritual life. We can so easily come into a spiritual practice with just the same kind of consumer orientation that we can move through the day with, an ordinary day. We think, well, come to that retreat, for example, and I'll have a really magnificent experience, which will be obvious to everybody, (laughs) and I'll be able to take it home, and it'll be like this trophy that from time to time, you know, when it seems right, I'll pull it out, (laughs) and I'll be able to show people, you know, look what I got, look what happened to me. It's really very common, because this is how we are conditioned, this is how we're trained. And yet, as we develop in the force of compassion, this grasping, this self-deprecating, clinging, starts to fall away, and compassion itself becomes the motivating force. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Perhaps it's for this kind of statement that uh, Buddhism is often considered in the West to be quite a pessimistic worldview. But really, it's not at all. He's saying, 
I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering. Which means many things on many levels. On one level it means that in order to get to the end of suffering, we take a journey through suffering. We have to open to it, acknowledge it, not pretend and not defend and not deny, but truly be honest about that part of life. And it also serves as almost a sort of grid. It's a worldview through which we can look at ourselves and look at others. When we look at ourselves, rather than seeing certain states as bad and wrong and crummy and contemptible, we see them as suffering. We look at our anger and we look at our fear and we look at our greed and we look at our jealousy. And we see that those are states of suffering, they're painful. And other states are the kind of states that lead to the end of suffering. Wisdom, clarity, compassion, awareness. If we see a state as suffering, then our tendency would be to respond with compassion, with caring, with kindness, rather than rejection and distaste, displeasure. Can you imagine looking at your own painful states without adding that other thing of disdain, of shame? but rather responding with compassion. And so, too, it is as we look at others, when that's our worldview, suffering and the end of suffering. So compassion becomes a a more natural response. It's not so studied. It's not so highly crafted. When we see more clearly, when we see along these lines, And then the third of the Brahma-viharas is sympathetic joy, actually taking delight in the happiness of others rather than fretting and feeling resentful, feeling secretly upset because somebody is doing well or is having success or some gain in some realm. Most often, really, we look at the happiness of others and somehow we do feel threatened by it. There is somehow this sense that happiness in this universe is a limited commodity and that it's stockpiled somewhere and that if you withdraw too much, you know, there's not going to be enough left over for me. It's a very common feeling. And yet how unfortunate it is. The quality of sympathetic joy, actually being able to be happy in the happiness of others, is a very rare and beautiful quality. I think we experience the beauty of it when we remember a time when perhaps we were the recipient of it. If you think of a time when something was going well for you in some way, and how beautiful it felt when someone was happy for you. 
and how generous it seemed when they were happy for you and how much it augmented your own happiness as compared to everyone else who looked at you. (laughs) Kind of, well, you don't really deserve it, sort of (laughs) vibe. (laughs) It's a very beautiful quality. And while difficult, it's not at all impossible to generate, to develop. First, we have to challenge that idea that happiness is a limited commodity and that we do not have enough. We challenge it by looking at our own joy and learning to take delight in it so that we have more of a feeling of abundance. We think of sympathetic joy as a kind of generosity. Generosity is truly born from a sense of inner abundance. In the material realm, I certainly and probably all of us have had experience of being with people who have very, very little money or goods or whatever, and yet who really give a lot. They're tremendously generous. When we go to Burma, for example, to practice, there's no charge for any of the retreat centers, the monasteries, because everything you eat is donated by the people. Sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's a family, sometimes a whole village will come together to feed the meditators because they so honor the fact that you are practicing. In Burma, in some places, you have to get on a waiting list in order to feed the meditators. And, you know, sometimes you have to wait as long as a year for your chance. And it's so amazing, because Burma also is an extremely poor country. And each time we went, I would watch the... um, kind of the quality of what people could give go down because uh, the economy was just getting worse and worse. And it was so amazing because sometimes the people who were offering the meal would actually come to watch you eat, which was also a great mindfulness inducer. (laughs) Um, But it was so amazing because sometimes they were so poor. It's like they really had nothing. And they were offering you the best of what they could offer you. And it was so beautiful. They'd sit there and and they would just be so grateful for the chance to give. And you think, well, where does that kind of generosity come from? You know, it doesn't come from a bank account. It doesn't come from how much they had managed to accumulate. It really comes from an inner sense of both having enough and being delighted to offer. And it's the same thing with sympathetic joy. We need to practice in a way having gratitude for what we have in terms of happiness, joy, possibility, opening, freedom in our lives. With that delight as the basis, we can look at the happiness of others and and actually rejoice. Of all these four practices, sympathetic joy is considered the most difficult. Because mostly we are not cruel people. 
in situations of enmity or fear, often the problem is that we are overcome or we're not clear enough or we're not mindful enough to see the suffering in the other person. If we could see the suffering in the other person, very often compassion will come. But to actually actively take delight in the happiness of others really takes a lot more transformation (laughs) than that. And yet it's possible, and it is so beautiful. A lot of times compassion is our doorway. When I was practicing in Burma, Upandita once gave me this little exercise. He said, go back to your room and imagine somebody you really don't like. This person you really don't like is sitting in a room that is full of people that you really do like. And all of these people that you like are heaping praise upon (laughs) this person that you really don't like. How do you feel? He said. Well, (laughs) but the truth is that everybody's lives is a tremendous mixture of pleasure and pain. And when we remember our vulnerability to change, to pain, to loss, then actually we don't begrudge the happiness that somebody has. It's rare that we will look at somebody and think, I want you to only suffer on and on and on without end. Occasionally that happens. No, it does, but it's not that common. But it's really because we don't remember the suffering, and if not the act of suffering, the vulnerability, which is what we do all share. And if we take the time to remember that, compassion does become our doorway to sympathetic joy. And we look at why it's so difficult. When I was um, writing my first book, Loving Kindness, and I was was living at home in Barry, I would go over to the center every day and talk to the, the resident community, the staff, and I'd say, does anybody have any sympathetic joy stories? And Somehow, they didn't really seem to be coming, you know? (laughs) Like two months later, when I was writing the chapter on morality, and I'd go over there and say, does anybody have any sexual misconduct stories? And suddenly, you know, I had like all these stories that were just pouring out of people. (laughs) But it is something that we have all experienced in some small way. And it's important to understand why those flickers of sympathetic joy are sometimes constrained by us or shut down by us. Sometimes it's because of judgment. We look at somebody who is happy, and they're not happy in a harmful way. You know, they're not hurting anybody. But their happiness or their lifestyle doesn't happen to be one that we would choose for ourselves or more particularly for them. (laughs) And so we look at them and we think, well, you shouldn't be happy because, in fact, you're not living the way I think you should live. 
And again, you know, it really isn't a um, kind of a clear-eyed assessment that, you know, they think they're happy, but the, the kind of happiness they have is really, it's really so hurtful to others that it's, you know, it's bound to be brittle. Um, it's not that kind of wisdom. Really, they're not hurting anybody, but they are defying our view of how they should live. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of giving somebody advice and having them not take it, you know, and then be perfectly happy with the choice that they made. And then there is that moment, well, do I want to feel righteous and, you know, upset, or can I just be happy for them, you know, that they made the choice that they did? If we can have that kind of mindfulness in that moment, we can let go of that feeling of needing to be right and just be happy. Sometimes sympathetic joy is thwarted through the sheer habit of comparing all the time. The Buddha talked about the mental state of comparing, which he called conceit in the Buddhist psychology. And it's conceit not based on the conclusion you draw in the act of comparing, but just through the kind of gnawing restlessness of comparing itself. Comparing is one of those tendencies of mind that tends to not come to cessation all by itself. We can feed it endlessly. If you just think about sitting in this room, for example, where the prize is to be thought a good meditator. Since that's actually immeasurable, we can't possibly know. What we do is we take some arbitrary standard, which is usually meaningless, and then judge ourselves and everybody else by it. So you might take a measure like, okay, a really good meditator doesn't move, doesn't change posture during sitting. So you come in and you sit down, and the person behind you moves 20 minutes into the sitting, and you think, oh, good. <laughs> you know, I'm really a lot better a meditator than they are, you know. Here they are, you know, poor thing has to move. Um, but then you think, well, you know, I came in from the walking and they were already sitting. What if they sat through the last sitting all the way through the walking and they're only first moving 20 minutes into this sitting? They're really a lot better than I am. And after you kind of um, find your place in the universe in reference to everyone else that you can possibly sense all around you, you have to do it all over again. Or what if somebody new comes in and then there's a new uh, area of competition or comparing? It's endless. Finding one answer, oh yes, I'm as good as, I'm better than, I'm less than, doesn't bring it to a stop. So it's the kind of mind state that we have to see clearly. 
and in some way let go of it. That doesn't mean in a hateful way let go of it, but understand that it's endless. It's like a treadmill. And get off. So that's one of the great difficulties with sympathetic joy. And yet it can be relinquished. We can let go of it. And what we find is a much more abiding sense of happiness. And then we have the habit, very often, of demeaning, just putting down. We may not mean anything by it, but it's a, it's a habit of speech. It's a way of, of being. It's like an attitude we can have. I can remember once, um, one February in Barry. Um, a friend was staying with me and we turned on the television and were watching the Winter Olympics and it was so startling because whenever somebody, this was um, the ice dancing, and whenever the pair were not from the United States, the commentators would say these unbelievably demeaning things like, um, lacks artistry, you know, and oh, look at that clumsy move and things like that. And you think, my goodness, these people are dancing on ice, you know? (laughs) Give them a little credit. (laughs) But it was the most chauvinistic, you know, egocentric sort of uh, perspective. And it just went on and on. It was almost like a comedy. But we can have that, that sort of attitude of trying to find superiority in exclusivity and putting someone else down. So if we see that kind of tendency, again, can we open? Can we look at the fear, the anxiety, which is actually at the basis of that sort of behavior, and relax from that? If we can do that, we will find a capacity for actually feeling joy in the happiness of others which only enriches our lives. The Dalai Lama put it, I think, very well, when he said, it only makes sense to take great delight in the happiness of others, because after all, there are so many more other people. He said, if you can take delight in the happiness of others, then you've increased your chance of happiness six billion to one. (laughs) Then he went on to say, those are very good odds. (laughs) And what we come to discover is that someone else's happiness is our happiness. It doesn't take away from our happiness. It is our happiness. Compassion and sympathetic joy balance each other as perspectives and as practices. We need to be able to look at the suffering, to be truthful, to not be guarded, to not feel betrayed when things change. And we need to be able to look at the joy so that we are not only looking at suffering, we're looking at the end of suffering as well. 
sometimes for the development of sympathetic joy, we need to just change perspectives almost. We need to move from large scale to small scale or small scale to large scale. We may be grappling with some very big problems, but we can take the time and see a sunset or see a flower, something. And so they will balance each other. And then the last of the Brahma-viharas is equanimity. When I was first practicing these, that was a little confusing to me because I could see how the first three of loving-kindness or friendship and compassion and sympathetic joy worked with each other. But equanimity seemed to me to be a whole other thing. Equanimity actually means spacious stillness of mind. It's balance of mind. And equanimity is the voice of wisdom. Equanimity is the clear seeing that says, this is how things are. That I cannot control through my will, through my wish, the natural unfolding of life which means change, it means uncertainty, it means a movement from pleasure to pain and back again. Everybody's life has pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's actually how it is. Once um, this friend of mine was having to tell her, her young son, who's about four years old at the time, that his uh, nanny, who had been taking care of him, his childcare worker, had been living with them from the time of his birth, was leaving. So she sat down with him and she explained that um, this woman loved him very much and they would stay really connected and she would call him and they could write to each other, but that she had to go move and, and live with her sister. And um, her son looked at her and said, Mommy, tell me that story again, but with a different ending this time. <laughs> Which is really how we feel a lot of the time, you know. It's like, if only we could change the channel or, you know, go back and erase and fast forward. And, but we can't. Life is a mixture of all these different elements, everybody's life. Equanimity allows us to see that clearly. Equanimity doesn't mean indifference. In fact, indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference is almost a subtle form of aversion as we withhold or or pull away. Equanimity is a full connection to what is but with understanding so that we are not engaged in the futility of trying to control what could never be controlled. And equanimity doesn't subvert loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy. In fact, it's said that it's equanimity 
that allows those qualities to be both true and boundless. Because there is nothing easier than for loving kindness to melt, in a way, into some degree of attachment. Like, be happy already, you know? I've given you a full week of my attention, you know, day in and day out. And here, you know, I left this retreat and you're not happy yet. Or some edge of of attachment, of demand, rather than that, that free spirit of generosity, which is loving kindness. It's equanimity which allows us to be present, to be loving, in balance, even when this person is not behaving just as we think they should, or perhaps not along our own schedule. So it's said that equanimity endows loving kindness with patience. and said that equanimity endows compassion with courage, because it's not easy to face suffering. And actually to have the heart tremble and quiver in response rather than shatter in response. We need some basis of understanding, of wisdom, to say, perhaps, I will do what I can do in response to pain, and I can't make it all go away. The example that's always given in the Buddhist text for the quality of equanimity is a parent whose child is now an adult and leaving home. This sort of nurturing and particular connection that needs to happen when the child is very young has changed. There's still perhaps tremendous love and devotion and care But the parent needs to acknowledge, well, now this child is an adult, and they're making their own choices. They will experience happiness or unhappiness based on those choices. I can't demand they live the way that I want. I can't force them to. I can't control their decisions. So it's great love and great letting go at the same time. So I used to read these examples all the time, and I used to think, what nice families they had at <laughs> the time of the Buddhist texts, you know, like all these parents, they love their children, then they let them go, and it was like so beautiful. And But that's the feeling tone. It's not that the parent looks at the child and then rejects them and says, well, you're on your own, it has nothing to do with me, I don't care anymore. There's tremendous connection in the letting go in the offering, in the recognition that this is actually the truth of things. This is how things are. Anything else is ignorance. Equanimity allows sympathetic joy even to exist beyond the one or two people that we might feel more easily about in terms of their happiness. It's because we learn to broaden our perspective, to be more at peace with how things are, that we can have 
more of that sense of inner abundance that allows us to be happier with more and more people as we see their happiness. So equanimity is actually, it's almost like the secret ingredient in the other three that allows them to keep growing and developing and not themselves fall into their near enemy or those states that might masquerade as, as the quality itself. Equanimity sees there is always pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's often said that these Brahma-viharas, especially the first three, but also the fourth, work most profoundly in the realm of intention in our lives. It's the heart space, the place from which our actions are born, that are the ground of transformation for the Brahma-viharas. In the Buddhist teaching, the intention behind an action is considered an extremely critical part of the action because this is the karmic seed. This is the energy of the action. And only we can know, interestingly enough, what intention or motivation is giving rise to an action. So it's an arena of discovery, of exploration, of mindfulness for us. And as we practice something like the Brahma-viharas, that arena, that home, becomes more and more one of loving-kindness rather than fear, and so on. The intention behind the action is, is the potency of the action, and only we can know. Someone else might imagine or guess or... Um, you know, think they know our motivation, but only we can actually know. The intention determines the flavor of the action. It's like if I reached down and picked up one of these books and handed it to you, you know, all anyone would see would be my hand moving down, lifting the book and reaching it forward. But maybe I'm offering you the book because I like you and I want you to have the book. Or maybe I'm offering you the book because I know you have a book I want. And I think, oh, well, I'll give you this book and you'll give me that other book. Or maybe I'm handing you the book because I know I'm in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think of me as a generous person. There could be many heart spaces that are giving rise to that one action. And so that's a tremendous area for us to look at, to get in touch with. Because you can see how it, it determines the flavor, the texture, the nature of that action. I mean, a hand reaching down lifting up a book is not much. But the place from which it is born is very powerful. It said sometimes that from the 
Buddhist point of view, you can divide an action into three sections or three aspects. One, and supremely important, is the motivation from which it is arising. The second is the quality of skillfulness or unskillfulness with which it is done. And that also means mindfulness. That means paying attention as carefully as we can, listening, getting feedback, learning, trying to be mindful of context, to be as sensitive and aware as we can be. So for example, if out of a beautiful motivation, I want to say something to somebody, I might stop and think, well, how might this best be said, as far as I can tell? Is it right to shout it out across a crowded room, or maybe I should take the person aside and say it more privately? What might be a better way of expressing this motivation? And so again, it's like a a tremendous arena for mindfulness, for clear seeing, for learning. And then comes the third part of the action, which you might call praise and blame, or how somebody responds to it, or what seems to be the immediate result of that action. And here is an arena where actually we don't have any control. And yet, sadly enough, it's this very place in which we normally determine our whole sense of integrity and who we are and how well we've done. But after all, any one of us are arriving at that moment together, born there by a sea of conditions, that might have a lot to do with the response. You know, what if I reached down and handed one of you this book, but on your way here to the hall, your cell phone rang, and you picked it up, and you found out you just won $10 million in the lottery. You know, so I hand you this book, and you couldn't care less about this book. But what does that mean about my generosity? Nothing. Yet, that is often how we, we continue to assess what we've done. What if you just got a very disconcerting phone call and you're, you're full of dismay and I hand you the book and you give it back to me? What does that mean about my motivation, or even the skillfulness with which I did it. Nothing. Yet we continue to judge ourselves and assess ourselves and evaluate our action on the basis of the realm of life we actually can't do anything about. And that doesn't mean we don't notice or we don't care, but that sort of corrosive, damaging judgment, which is endless, in an arena that is hopeless doesn't sound very good. There's a great deal of understanding and recommendation in the Buddhist teaching. In a way, it's like to take back that sense of integrity. 
bring it back to looking at our motivation, which isn't always easy to face. Bring it back to looking at the level of skillfulness of our action and keep learning, keep growing. The Buddha said in what I think was one of his great common sense teachings, he said, there's always blame in this world. He said, and actually the context of the story was that a man came to the monastery one day to ask um, something about the Buddha's teaching and the first person he came upon was a monk who had taken a vow of silence. And so when the man asked him to say something about the Buddha's teaching, the man didn't say anything. The monk didn't say anything. So the man became really furious and he stomped away. He came back the second day and came upon a different disciple of the Buddha's who was very well known for his great theoretical knowledge as well as his deep basis in practice. So when he was asked to say something about the teachings, he gave a very elaborate and theoretical response. And again, the man became furious and he stomped away. So the third day, the same man came back and he came upon a disciple of the Buddha named Ananda. Now Ananda had heard what had happened on the first day and heard what had happened on the second day. So it said that he was very careful to say something, but not too much. And the man became really angry and he said something to him like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. (laughs) So this group of people went off to see the Buddha and they said, oh Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. And we need equanimity toward that, which means wisdom, means understanding that this is the nature of things so that we can go on in loving kindness and in compassion and in sympathetic joy. Otherwise, we will just give up. Not too long ago, uh, I was in California, different trip, and I had lunch with somebody who was talking about my book, Loving Kindness, and she said, you know, you wrote that book in such a way, it's just like being with you. It's like having a conversation with you. And I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, what a totally beautiful thing to say. I was so happy about it that that evening, I was having dinner with a whole other group of people and I brought up the comment. Someone at the dinner table said, that's not true. (laughs) She said, I'm reading your book, it's nothing like being with you. (laughs) And I thought, okay. (laughs) You can either be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner (laughs) or you could take a moment and think, it's the same book. It's just one book, written from whatever motivation was giving rise to it at the time, with whatever level of skillfulness I could bring forth at the time. It's just one book. One person thought one thing of it, another person thought another thing of it. And this happens a lot with one activity. And it's not really the case that I didn't notice that (laughs) 
you know, lunch was different than dinner. <laughs> I mean, I definitely noticed, and I enjoyed one comment a lot more than the other. But, nonetheless, it's just one book. Often, we are, in fact, elated at lunch and depressed at dinner for just that reason. Equanimity offers us another possibility. We know the difference between one comment and the other, and we might care. But underneath the caring is an understanding, which provides spaciousness, it provides peace, because it's truthful that there's change in this world. Things are out of our control. We can't determine how someone will respond. We can't make all the pain go away. And so we continue to act from the best motivation that we possibly can. And then we let go. That's equanimity. It's peace of mind. Together, these four qualities form a basis of compassion, joy, friendship, and peace from which to live. Each one of them will support and reinforce the others. And this actually is what we bring into the world. It's a recognition, it's an understanding that our action can be born from this place of acknowledging connection, of caring, of not feeling diminished by the happiness of others, of having our hearts move in the face of suffering. Our actions can be born from here, more and more and more. And they can be informed, our lives can be stabilized. We can find peace with the truth of things through the force of equanimity, which is wisdom. I had a wonderful example of that once, which is a story that's a little complicated. It involves a lot of different aspects. But um, one part of the story is the story of this woman, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, which in addition to being the place where uh, so many of us have done practice, is also a military dictatorship. And uh, Aung San Suu Kyi spent about six years under house arrest. Uh, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 while under house arrest. Um, and she was released from nominal house arrest for a period. Uh, now again, her, her life and her movements are severely restricted, although it's not called house arrest anymore. Um, but in that brief period when she was first released and she was allowed access to journalists and um, people visiting and so on, she talked about that period of time when uh, she was first placed under arrest. She actually won um, the election. It was never allowed to take office. When she was first placed under arrest, her children were 
pretty young, I think nine and twelve, and she ended up not seeing them for years. Um, she didn't see her husband for years. And she lived with a certain amount of deprivation because she refused to take any money from the government, and so she was often malnourished, and um, she developed a heart condition, and she couldn't get out of bed, and all these different things. But it was pretty clear that she could leave the country and almost undoubtedly would not be let back in. But she always chose not to leave because um, she was so much the symbol of hope for the people of Burma, for democracy. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story has to do with the famous year when we brought Sayadu Upandita over from Burma to Barry. He taught a three-month retreat in Barry, and he had a really fantastic translator that year. So some of us at the end of that retreat thought, well, <clears throat> given how unusually great the translator was, it might be very interesting to create a book based on those talks. So I took on that project and I raised some money and I got a transcriber and I <clears throat> got an editor and um, we took this great wealth of material and in fact made a book out of it, which um, I think is very clear and direct and very good. It's um, quite in the classical idiom of Buddhist teaching. So at the end of that time, the book is called In This Very Life, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha. It was put out by Wisdom Publications. And at that time I thought, well, this is sort of like a good deed I did in a small kind of way. You know, I did something um, to thank my teacher, which was very important to me. And we created a book, which um, is very clear. It's a very good book. I knew it was never going to be a bestseller because of the stringency of the language and the, the way the teachings are presented. It's just very, very classical. So that's one other part of the story. Now back to Aung San Suu Kyi. When she was released from house arrest and she was in this period where she was meeting people more freely, several of my friends went over to Burma and they happened to meet with her. And she said to each of them and later wrote about the fact that uh, when she was under arrest and she was at home, she decided that she needed to learn how to meditate. She had seen many colleagues use their time of prison, one kind of prison or another, in developing meditation to their spiritual benefit. And so she decided to meditate, but she didn't really know how. So she said she would sit and grit her teeth and try and try, and everything just got worse and worse. And then her husband sent her in a copy of this book, of Upandita's book. And that's how she learned how to meditate. And she said it was the main source of spiritual sustenance for her in those years. So you can imagine how I felt when I heard that, <laughs> you know. It was an extraordinary moment, really, in my life. Many things changed at that moment. Because one of the greatest lessons of that whole experience was that here was something I did that I thought was a minor nice thing to do in this world. And it turned out in ways I could never have imagined and certainly not have directed to do something that was immensely, immensely gratifying far beyond anything I could have planned or decided on, or even really imagined. 
I felt I learned in an irrevocable way from that experience that we need to do what we can do. We need to do what's right in front of us. We need to act from the best motivation that we can and act for the good of ourselves and others, even if it seems like nothing much. Because actually we have no idea. We truly don't know. Based on that experience, actually, I thought for a while of writing a book called Basically Clueless. (laughs) Because we are. (laughs) And so rather than feeling, well, it's not good enough, or, you know, it's not going to do enough, or whatever we might tend to feel, it's actually very important that we, we generate these energies of metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity and that as much as possible we make them our home and as much as possible we act and act again on this basis. So I'll close with this uh, quotation from the writer Susan Griffin from Woman in Nature which I think is a beautiful expression of our interconnectedness. She says, We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving and we are part of this motion, that the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts on each side of the mountain, like the parting of our hair, and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides, that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky, This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. You cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say every act has its consequences, that this place has been shaped by the river and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred. <clears throat>